there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I always appreciate the opportunity to do a question and answer time. Not because I can answer all the questions, but it does give me an opportunity to speak to issues that aren't necessarily covered in my prepared talks. And I do want to say, by way of introduction, that I will try to give you a biblical answer. Obviously, I have no authority other than the Bible. If I can't give you a biblical answer, I may give you an Elizabeth Elliot opinion, which is worth next to nothing, and you can discard that at will. I trust you will be slower to discard an answer given from the scriptures. I also have to give a fairly brief answer. We do have more time this afternoon than I'm used to having for questions and answers, so maybe we'll get through all of these, but I do try to be as brief as I can. I've thought a lot about the whole business of asking questions because people do ask a lot of questions, and I ask questions myself. And I have made some notes for myself, which I go over sometimes when I have a question for God that I really don't know the answer to. And God seems to be saying to me, are you willing to understand? What if understanding requires you to rearrange your life? That's a question that cuts rather deeply. If God's answer requires me to rearrange my life, do I really want the answer? And very often you and I are convinced that a thing is impossible, even though it may be apparently required of us. If it's required of us, we can be absolutely sure that it is possible. It is always possible to do the will of God, and we can depend on that. We're very prone to ask, but what will this do to me or to my friend, my friend or my child or my wife if I do what God seems to be telling me to do? That's pragmatism. That's not a Christian response. We are to do it in childlike trust and leave the results with God. The results of my obedience are always God's business. They are not my business. That doesn't mean that we don't try to think through things and think what this may lead to. We ought to do that, and we can't help doing that. But there are times when it looks as though it's an impossibility. But when the answer is clear in the scriptures, then we have to be obedient. And Jesus said, whoever cares for his own safety is lost. But if a man will let himself be lost for my sake, he will find his true self. And you remember Peter's response when Jesus told him what he was to do, feed my sheep. And Peter turned around and pointed to John and he said, well, what about this man? What's he supposed to do? And I think the Lord often gives us the same answer when we give that kind of an objection. What is that to you? You follow me. 
In other words, what business is that of yours? George MacDonald says, questions imply answers. If God has put the question in my heart, then he must hold the answer in his. I will seek them from him. I will wait, but not until I have knocked. I will be patient, but not until I have asked. I will seek until I find. He has something for me. My prayer shall go up unto the God of my life. I always want to encourage you to go first to God. But having said those things, I will see what I can do with the questions that you've asked me. And if you think my answer is really off the wall, or perhaps I've misread your question, uh, you have the infallible resource in God himself. How do Christian parents cope in the long run with a child living with their boyfriend? 23 years old and has been taught in the Word? Not an uncommon question. I get variations on that one quite often. I'm not sure what this person means by cope. How do I cope with my feelings? That's one thing. How do I cope, meaning how do I treat my daughter and her boyfriend? Do I allow them to visit our home? Do I allow them to sleep in our home? Do I go to visit them? Maybe this is what the person means. I really don't know. But it is a very serious question, and it's one that probably in one form or another touches most of us. We have situations in our families which are not moral. We know they're not, and they are contrary to God's law. And it's particularly serious when the person is a Christian and will not listen to any exhortation from someone who loves them. I do have a very dear friend who was a strong Christian, had been a missionary. She came from a very strong background, and so did her husband. But she and her husband got into the most bizarre, immoral situation I've ever heard of. And it went on for not just weeks and months, but years. And during that time, her sister refused to allow her to come into their house. And, of course, my friend was just furious and hurt and aghast that this sister, who called herself a Christian, shut the door in her face. But you know what my friend said to me when finally she came to repentance and completely did a 180-degree turn? Both she and her husband went out of that situation and really repented. She said to me, I knew my sister was right. And she said that was part of the reason that we came back to the Lord. I didn't want to pay the price that I knew I had to pay if I was going to continue in sin. So I'm not going to tell you that you must shut the door in the face of that person, nor am I going to tell you that you must allow them to come in. I don't know the answer, and it may differ. There are a number of scriptures that say when it is a believer who is deliberately persisting in a known sin who has been spoken to by the elders in the church, if they continue, you're to have no fellowship with them. You're not even to eat with them. Now, I know that the Amish people and the Mennonites, some branches of Mennonites, practice this. And my brother-in-law, Jim Elliott's brother, is a missionary in Peru and has been for many, many years. And he tells me that among the very small, very Bible-believing churches that he is familiar with in the jungles and in the high mountains of Peru, they have practiced church discipline in 
just the kind of thing we're talking about, where a man persists in immorality, he is banned from the church, and he will be stopped at the door if he attempts to come in, and he will be asked why he's coming. And if it's to repent, then of course he's allowed in. If it's not, he is not allowed to come in, and people are not allowed to eat with them, even on a social basis. Besides being banished from the communion table, they are banished from the homes of other Christians. And I said to him, and how often does this lead to repentance and restoration? And he said about 95% of the time. I don't know very many churches, I don't know any churches that practice that, that strictly and that severely in this country. There may be some, but I don't know about them. But there is something to be said for the person having to pay a high price to continue in sin. Now, I know that the other side of the question is we are supposed to love them. We're not stopping loving them by asking a high price. Uh, When we punish our children, we punish them because we love them. And there is a formula in Scripture for what is to be done by uh, the other Christians when one Christian is persisting in sin. If that has been faithfully followed then I think we have to leave the answer, the individual answer, as to what happens in your individual families with God. What advice would you give to a battered wife who feels that she cannot leave the home? When I read this question, I assumed that it was the battered wife that was writing the question. My husband suggested that it might be somebody else that's asking the question for her, perhaps a friend who is suggesting that she should leave the home. So, again, I I really don't know where this question is coming from. It's another one of those hard questions. I don't know the answer. Uh, If it's only a battered wife, that's one thing. If it's a battered wife and battered children that the wife certainly feels responsible to protect, it seems to me that's another thing. We have Jesus' clear words, do not resist an evil person. And we also have his word, when we are strict, struck on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Don't go out of here and say, Elizabeth Elliot says that a battered wife is supposed to stay there until she's battered to death. Elizabeth Elliot is trying not to say what the Bible doesn't say. It's not my purpose, it's not my province to spell out exceptions. I don't know the answer if this wife ought to leave the house or not. I go back again and again to Jesus' words, if we lose our lives for Christ's sake, we will find them. And he has articulated that principle again and again. He that saveth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. I had a friend who had gone through three husbands. She was a very worldly woman. She became a Christian when she was in her 50s. And she had been violently treated by all three of her husbands. One of them had actually thrown her out of a moving car. And she said to me, Elizabeth, I asked for every bit of it I got. Now that's one woman's testimony. That is not necessarily the case in everyone. But she knew that there were ways in which she was just being uh, assertive and defensive and nasty to her husband and just arousing his anger in such a way that she said, I deserved the treatment that I got. But it's 
a very common question, and I've thought about it and prayed about it for years. I don't know what else to say. What does the Bible say, and what do you have to say about interracial dating and marriage? Well, God forbade the Israelites to intermarry with heathen tribes because of the influence of heathen religions. It wasn't because God was a racist. There's nothing in the New Testament or anywhere, as far as I know, about um, just interracial marriage per se, apart from the specific tribes that God told people of Israel not to marry with. I think that it's reasonable to look at the fact that usually when you're talking about an interracial marriage, you're also talking about an intercultural marriage. And marriage has its own built-in problems. We're all sinners, and for a sinful man to live 365 days a year with a sinful woman has its own built-in difficulties. We add quite a long list of difficulties when we marry interculturally. I knew of several cases in Ecuador where American women married, American or English women married Ecuadorian men. And I only know of one case where that really was a success. In all the other cases, it ended in divorce, usually because of expectations. There were certain cultural expectations of the wife which were not at all acceptable to the American or English wives. And I think you just have to take a long, hard look at what this is going to involve. We've probably all heard stories of friends who have married foreigners, maybe having visited his country once, and then when they get married, they find that things are much different than they had been able to discern in that short time. So all I can say is, what, as for what I have to say, is be very cautious we do have friends, Bernie and what was her name? Can't remember the wife's name. Bernie Smith is a black man in Canada, a wonderful song leader who's a good friend of ours from InterVarsity from Urbana days, and his wife is white. And uh, they seem to have a very happy marriage and a bunch of happy kids, all of whom look black. Um, there's one of those exceptions. How do you deal with in-laws and parents who question your authority and decisions in front of the children? We are not present at the time. I gather that this means if the children go to stay with uh, grandparents, they come home and report that the parents' own rules are criticized or disobeyed in the other house. Certainly the most obvious thing that I would say would be to, to have a quiet, friendly little talk with those parents and in-laws and ask them uh, if they are aware of what your rules are and would they be willing to cooperate. Now, there's certain things that you wouldn't do at home that you would allow your children to do at their grandparents' home. I would allow, if I were the parent, I think I would certainly expect the children to have more treats and more toys and who knows what all at the grandparents because we grandparents are supposed to spoil our grandchildren, aren't we? I really don't think that that's my job to spoil them. And it, I, I do try to make a point of making sure that I'm not disobeying any of the rules that the children have at home, but they do understand that there are some rules in my house that they don't have at home. Uh, we just don't put up with slamming doors 
and toys all over the floor. My rule when they come to my house is you don't get out the Legos until you have put away the dolls. You don't get out the crayons until you put away whatever you're playing with last. And that, although that might be a theoretical rule in Valerie's house, she tells me that it's just almost impossible to enforce. So our children, our grandchildren know that in Granny's house they can't do things that they can do at home. Whether they can do things at home uh, that they can't do in our house, that was probably true. Obviously it works both ways. But just a quiet talk, a, a reasonable sitting down with them. And if parents give you an argument and say they think the rule is stupid and they're not going to go by that, then you have to decide whether you're going to let the children continue to go there for how long. And I think you can also talk to the children and just say, fine, if that's the way it works in your grandpa's house, that's grandpa's business, but this is the way it's going to work at home, and you've got to understand and adapt, just as you understand and adapt. If you have different rules in school than you have at home, uh, they can learn this. Certainly I need to caution the grandparents, whoever is questioning this authority, that that is a dangerous business. I don't think that's right to question the authority of the parents. I really don't think it's right. I think we grandparents have a responsibility to back up what our children do with their children. What can I do with a husband that lectures the kids and me all the time? What can we do with any kind of a husband? <laughs> we stay there. <laughs> we love them. We support them. We pray for them. We thank the Lord for them. We respect them. Again, in a Christian marriage, I would hope that there is opportunity for a Christian husband and a Christian wife to sit down and talk in a sensible, calm, and orderly, reasonable way about anything that's causing friction. But if that's not possible, or if you say, well, it's been done 25 times, it doesn't do any good, then I would say ask the Lord to give you a, a more meek and quiet and gentle spirit. Listen to the lecture graciously and try to help the children to listen. Always it's the job of the mother to help the children to respect their father, and it's the job of the father to help the children to respect their mother. If there's anything that I find extremely hard to take, it's children who can sass their mother in front of the father, and the father doesn't stand up for the mother. George MacDonald has said, the best thing you can do for your children, speaking to fathers, is to love their mother. And the best thing that we mothers can do is to love their father. We need to support each other and to respect and honor the position of each other. The same person asks, what do you do when the kids continue to disobey after being punished for the same thing? They are ages 11 to 13. I think the first thing I would do would be to ask the child if he's enjoying this punishment. Does he understand why he's getting it? It should be perfectly clear what the relationship is, the cause and effect. If you do this, then you are going to be punished and the child does the thing, and he gets punished, and he goes, goes ahead and does it again, it would seem pretty clear to me that the punishment is not severe enough. It doesn't bother him very much. Maybe he'd rather have the spanking and be allowed to go ahead and get away with whatever he's doing. The end, the object of Christian discipline should be 
sanctification. We want to make our children holy. And so as God deals with us as with sons, God's object is not to give us a choice. You either do this or you get a spanking. It's going to be you either do this or you get a spanking and you're going to do this anyway. The spanking leads to doing the thing anyway. You don't give the spanking as an alternative. The spanking is the result of disobedience. You give the spanking and then follow through to see that the child does the thing. I have heard of parents who actually give the child an alternative. You either get a spanking or you go to church, and the kid would take the spanking any day rather than go to church if he's given that kind of an option. So when the child continues to disobey after he's being punished, it may be that he's having a good time. It's not really a very bad punishment, and he would rather continue to do the thing. So think of another punishment or make it more severe. If we're talking about spankings, which probably we're not, if the child is aged 11 to 13, I would think of some privilege that re- means a great deal to the child and just make it perfectly clear that that privilege will be withheld if the offense is repeated. You can think of appropriate punishments. Pray about them. Ask the Lord to show you what to do. My grandchildren, the, the thing they hate the most is to be uh, not to be allowed to attend an event that they were looking forward to or to perhaps watch a video that the family's all going to watch together and to have to go to bed early. That's about the worst punishment for my nine-year-old grandson, Jim. He just hates to go to bed at all, let alone early. (laughs) Uh, How do you determine God's will for your life? Is God's calling at one time in your life to one area of ministry for life, or can it change? I look at it as my call to God. My call is not to a country or an organization or a job. My call is to follow the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I certainly thought that God had called me to lifetime foreign missionary service. I fully expected to be living in the jungle under thatched roof for the rest of my life. God had given me a gift in linguistics. He had given me uh, desire to reduce some of the unwritten languages of the world to writing so that the Bible could be translated. And he gave me the privilege of doing that, not just in one tribe, but in three different tribes in Ecuador. But in various ways, which are too difficult to go into this afternoon, God closed one door after another. And it was finally very clear that God was leading me back to the States. I didn't know why, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But it's a case of trust. You know, Abraham had to go out not knowing where he was going. So the question of how you determine God's call, I think, is not as difficult as I thought it was. I told you earlier that I did an awful lot of worrying about that. But the Lord is my shepherd, and the shepherd is much more interested in getting the sheep where the sheep belong than the sheep are in getting there. So he's not going to make it difficult for us if we will simply obey one step at a time. And I will give you three basic rules for for discovering the will of God. It starts by, number one, telling the Lord you'll do what he says. And you tell him that before he has told you what he wants you to do. You accept his will in trust. You don't know what's in store. 
any more than a bride knows exactly what she's getting when she gets that prize package that's waiting for her down the front of the church. Um, None of us knew exactly what we were getting into when we got married, did we? The prize package is always a surprise package. And the will of God is also a matter of trust. The reason you marry the man is because you love him, and you love him because you trust him, and you trust him because you love him, and so there isn't any question whatsoever. Then the things begin to happen that make you question your love and question your trust. With God, he's not going to give you a blueprint. He's not going to give you a smorgasbord. He says, trust me. So that's number one. You tell him you'll do anything he says, just as Mary did. Second thing, how can you know what he's saying if you're not spending time in silence, in prayer, and in Bible reading. And those things go together. And of course, in going to church. You can't be listening to God earnestly if you're not spending time with the Lord's people in church, reading your Bible, praying, and doing what he says. That brings me to the third thing, which is do what God has already shown you. Very often when a student says to me, how will I find the will of God for my life? I say, well, you're a student, aren't you? And they say, yes. And I say, well, I can tell you exactly what the will of God is for you today. And they look at me in astonishment. You're a student. The will of God is for you to study. Well, they don't want to hear that. (laughs) And by studying like a Christian, I mean don't cut classes, don't cheat on your exams, Don't plagiarize on your term papers. Don't get things in late. Don't ask your professor for extensions. That's the way a faithful Christian studies. Faithfully, on time, promptly, treats his professor respectfully. Those are the very obvious little down-to-earth things that the student thinks have nothing to do with his spirituality. They have everything to do with his spirituality. Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least, I will make him ruler over many things. Now, why would he tell you what career he wants you to go into if you're being disobedient by cheating on exams? It doesn't make any sense. Now, you can apply it to your own situation, whatever that may be. What is it God is telling me to do today? Let me do that thing. Then the Lord will show me the next step. Excessive busyness seems to be another force attacking the family. Sometimes even the church seems to demand more of a family's time than it can give without undue strain, especially if we as parents hold positions of leadership. How can we establish and maintain priorities? And this is a perennial question which all of us have to deal with. This is a good time to be thinking about this because... New Year's Day is coming up, and maybe on the 31st of December, when you've taken down the Christmas tree and cleaned up all the paper and the ribbon and all the rest of it and put away the stuff that you got for Christmas, sit down on December 31st or on January 1st and thank God for all that's past, trust him for all that's come, and acknowledge the fact that your time is in his hands. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, 
The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.